0: Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on Marketing. If you haven't already done so, please visit ProRelevant.com and sign up for all of these episodes and podcasts. I am the author of the just-released book, The Post-COVID Marketing Machine, Prepare Your Team to Win. You can find more information on this at MarketingMachine.ProRelevant.com. Today, we'll be speaking with Teresa Caro. She is passionate about how new media and technologies create opportunities for brands and impact the overall customer experience. Teresa is a sought after thought leader. Both an author and, and speaker, Teresa has been quoted in leading publications like Harvard Business Review, USA Today, NPR, and Forbes on how businesses can succeed in an evolving digital marketplace. She speaks at numerous marketing events, including CMO US, Media Post, and AdTechs. Her work has been recognized by leading awards such as Cannes Lion, Clio Awards, One Show, Effie Awards, and Radio Mercury. Teresa worked with leading publicist group agencies such as Razorfish and Moxie before joining now the Johnson Group as president now in 2022. Welcome, Teresa.
1: Thank you, Guy.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. Really appreciate it, and you've certainly got a great background. And uh, so, definitely uh, looking forward to our chat. So, tell us a more a little bit more about how you got into marketing.
1: Well, I sort of fell into it, um, and and yes, I'm going to admit how old I am in the early '90s. Uh, and as we discussed last night, Guy, and and your book launch uh, in the early '90s on the East Coast and potentially the Midwest going through some difficult times. And so graduating school, I just took the first job that I could find. Thankfully, it was with Ford Motor Company. But I realized very quickly that from a sales perspective, that wasn't my jam. And working with consultants and talking to a lot of people, I realized that I loved supporting the sales process through marketing, not so much being the front end of it. So thus was born my marketing career. From there, I discovered that I I love brands. I've worked with a lot of great brands, but I love the energy and the excitement and the diversity of advertising agencies. So as you look through my my resume, my LinkedIn profile, you'll see various things that I've done throughout my career, but I keep coming back to the advertising agency world. And I'm excited that Joe Johnson has invited me to help him lead his organization of 26 years, the Johnson Group.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you were just named the president of the Johnson Group, but also the uh, chief dragon slayer, it looks like. So tell us about Johnson (laughs) Group and and how you're going to slay some great dragons. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, we, we definitely love slaying our giants. Um, yes, we are an advertising and marketing firm. We have been around for 26 years and you may think with us, and, and yes, it says it right here, you may think that giant slaying means that we are, we help small brands compete against the big brands. And, and that's really the analogy of David and Goliath, uh, and, and that how we use that. But in reality, if you look at the story between the giant and David, this is really a, a huge challenge that everyone was afraid to tackle, right? And then David comes along with a very simple, creative solution and kills lays the giant. right? And that's what the Johnson Group has been doing for over two decades, really working with key brands, leaders in their space, and figuring out who are their giants. Who do they need to slay, and and how do we come up with creative ideas to go about doing it? So it's it's very exciting, but I'm able to join such a well-established organization and help them take help take them to the next level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I really like the analogy with uh, David and Goliath, uh, kind of the young up upstart versus the entrenched big leader. And and you know what's interesting when you think about uh, Goliath and and, uh, you know, in the bigger brands, and as a small brand, you're always afraid of the big brands because you think they're just going to crush you. But they're also just stuck in their own momentum. And you really do have the opportunity to slay dragon, slay dragons. And, and so I really like that uh, that analogy.
1: Yeah. And it's not necessarily we work with some of the big giants in the space. But what's interesting is those giants. Have their own giants and, and you talk a lot about it in, in your book, guys, that it's not only your competitors, but some of those giants might be economic factors, cultural shifts, uh, brand misperceptions because something that's going on. And so how do we how do we work with giants in the space to help them overcome their own personal giants. It, it, it's a very exciting time, especially now. There are a lot of nervous people what's going on. Personally, I nerd out about the space right now because we don't know where it's going. And and to try to get ahead of it and come up with those simple creative solutions, that's where agency par- partners such as ourselves really come into play.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, uh, it's not only creative nowadays in terms of, you know, coming up with a great concept, you know, the Aflac duck or whatever it happens to be but it's also how especially in digital how you mix that creative concept with how you actually bring it to the to the audience and uh exactly. and it's that combination of creativity on both sides that i think that can really make a difference.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, so uh i saw an article and it's always interesting you know, when you hear people talk about data and I'm a data driven guy, uh, my book is about data and building a marketing machine on using data to really help drive sales through what marketing does and using analytics. And uh, there was an article in Media Post and there were a couple of things which kind of stood out. And one was that uh, that CMOs, 42 percent of the CMOs say that data can inhibit creativity and then there's 41% that say exactly the opposite. And, uh, and so how do you see that? So can data driven companies or do you see data driven analytics really hindering or do you see it helping creativity?
1: So it's interesting. One, it made me chuckle that article because. 42% say one thing and 41% said another. So it wasn't really sure <laughs> what was what the article was saying, except for the fact that marketers can never agree. Uh, the thing that I did when, when you shared that article with me is I'm a bit of a, a word nerd in that I have found through my career that different people define different words differently. And so it, the first thing I wanted to do is what does creativity mean? And and if you look at it, the definition of creativity is actually pretty dull. I'll read to you for a second. Uh, Defined as the tendency to generate or recognize ideas, alternatives, or possibilities that may be useful in solving problems, communicating with others, and entertaining ourselves and others. A rather dull definition, wouldn't you say? Uh, And then you have data. And that definition is factual information, such as measurements or statistics, used as a basis for reasoning, discussion, or calculation. Well, when you combine those two things together, and, and yes, I'm, I'm pandering to the interviewer here. You have a whole section in your latest book around data and how data doesn't necessarily mean dashboards. You have a whole section on that and and how data means what's going on in the world. It means competitors. Like we just talked about it. it I love to explore a whole idea of how, um, how culture can, can be a, an important data point. And then you, you take that and, and those are the data things. You, you need someone smart enough to distill that down, tell a story and then spark creativity so if you take like creativity, I believe we can all agree creative is going back to what I said in the beginning of what's the challenge that we're trying to solve? What's the objective that we're trying to achieve? And how do we go best doing it? And how do we make it different than everyone else? Well, data, if used correctly, if not just numbers, but other aspects are distilled down, you spark that creativity, then great ideas come out of that uh, in terms of the ones that say that it doesn't work, then my argument would be then you don't have the right person distilling down the data and really bringing it to life and something that gets someone to be creative. Um, there's nothing worse, Guy, than uh, – I call it blank paper syndrome. We all get in a room with all of these blank whiteboards and sticky notes – And and an assignment brief, which assignment briefs are important, saying that we need to increase sales by 20 percent. Here's our budget. Um, And we have demographic data. You know, we're going after 35 to 55-year-old females. Okay. But what else? What makes this particular audience important, unique? What cultural factors are going on? What are the competitors doing? What's the win space? How can we really get the creative people in the room thinking Creatively, that's when it works. And and at the Johnson Group, we like to say that we dig for big. Well, we really dig into the insights and pull out something unique that no one else has thought of before. And then we come up with that creative idea to to differentiate us or our our partners from the rest of our competitors and really achieve those objectives.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, to your point about understanding well, first of all, the definition of creative versus the definition of data. But uh, really, really good creative is also many times uh, has the foundation of good data. And data doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, of course it means numbers, but it doesn't necessarily mean we sold, you know, 20 units last week and we're going to sell 21 this week and and things like that. Uh, But uh, when I think of data and great, absolutely great creative uh i think back at the uh, the campaign for real beauty with uh, with dove and with unilever and when they did the research they came up with this uh, this concept of self esteem for uh basically teenage girls and the lack that they have and they then used that one piece of data and then blew it out of the really blew it out with their whole campaign for real beauty, and I think that's a that is a great example where, on the one hand, you're using the data, you're using the research, and then you're driving your creative based on that that critical research.
1: And that's a key thing, Guy, because how many people, when they see the word data or they hear the word data, think numbers? There was no numbers in in the real beauty insight. This is really understanding. What's going on culturally in the world? And, and that was the beginning of this, this self image of, of filters and, um, and just altering of, of what truly is real beauty and really leaning into that to the point that now Dove is known for real beauty. You say real beauty, you think Dove. You don't think anybody else. And so they truly owned that space through a key insight, through that data point that wasn't actually a number.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, they also transition that not only for the young, but also for, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word old because <laughs> I don't consider myself, <laughs> but then they also have, you know, be comfortable in the skin you're in. And, uh, and mm-hmm. all of those insights, all of that. And I do call, I just like you do, I call that data as well. Uh, mm-hmm. that is just critical stuff to know. And then when you're putting that, that creative together to really understand how your consumers are, uh, how they, how the culture is uh, affecting your consumers, how you're advertising and messaging, right. and then how they are going to respond to that. I think that's, uh, that's really, really critical.
1: Agreed. Agreed.
0: Yeah. So, uh, well, let's change the topic here a little bit. Uh, so tell us, uh, what's it like And what kind of advice would you give to a brand-new client-side CMO?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Well, first, no pressure. But brand-new CMOs only last about six months. First-time CMOs only last about six months. Uh, So the biggest advice I would give to a first-time CMO is hire an executive coach. That is the first thing that you do. You're going to need that that trusted sounding board to to get you through it. Um, Know that it's going to be fun. The first 30, 45 days, everybody's excited that you're there. They believe that you're going to solve a lot of things. Know that it's going to be hard. That second phase is truly hard because you are going to bring in new ideas that no one else has thought of. You are going to be investing in change. And sometimes that change impacts People and their jobs, their, your peers, your, your own boss, because your own boss has a preconceived notion of who you are and what he or she expects of you. Um, and then you, even your own employees, you will, in order to make an impact, which you've probably been asked to do, you will have to make change and change is hard, change is painful, change is stressful. Um, but then the third thing is no, once if you are confident in yourself, You take the time to hear people out. You, you do that, that bridge building, that consensus building, that, that storytelling. Once you get through the hard part uh, over the other side, it's, it's really, really a fabulous, fabulous time. I have throughout my career, either both on the brand side and on the agency side, been considered that transformational leader, that growth leader. I'm usually not brought in to replace someone. I'm usually brought in to to grow something, to change something. And that's really what I've seen. And and I'm in that second phase at, at the Johnson Group now. And every single one of the people at the Johnson Group would say, love to have Teresa here, but change is hard. Uh, but I have learned and I have grown confident in the fact that once they get over that hump, it's really going to be smooth sailing from there and, and very, very exciting.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it's actually interesting. Um, I kind of, Think about a brand manager. Uh, if the brand manager is not bringing about change and disruption in the marketplace with the consumers of their brands, uh, then they will most likely not be successful. If they're just going to go steady state, make no changes, then they're more or less on the way down. So they're, they're incentivized to make changes. But the difference then for the CMO, especially a new CMO or a first time CMO, is you're no, you're not only making changes on the outside, but you have to make changes on the inside and, uh, and making changes to the team and making changes to the broader team, which is the whole company. And those changes are very, very painful. So I really like your point. And, and I like your point as well about having an executive coach because you finally have a, a person that you can really trust as a trusted advisor that doesn't have any skin in the game other than to make you successful. And that really makes a lot of sense.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting that you pointed out, Guy, that it is external change, but also internal change. I have found throughout my career, and, and it's no different now, is people focus on the work. How are you going to improve the, that, that deliverable itself? People forget that in order to improve about, upon that deliverable, you need to clear the way. For those create, we just talked about creative. You need to clear the way for those people to do some great creative thinking. You need to set them up for success. You need to get them the right tools, which means really the first step of being successful is people process and plumbing. Really evaluating those and getting them in the right place. That takes time. Uh, you may move as quickly as you can to get those fixed, but it's not fast enough, and so there'll be a lot of pressure for you to skip to the work itself. Um, you use the Real Beauty example and that CMO went on to Burger King and now he's gone on to do other things. I am a huge friend, fan of his. Um, Real Beauty was there before he got there. And so, and so it hadn't really taken off. Can you imagine the amount of pressure he must have been on to make that hugely successful? Um Burger King, the same thing. Uh, they took a risk to... Do something within the Burger King app, so they could go up against McDonald's. From what I read, and obviously I wasn't there, nor was I I lucky enough to be part of that agency. But it took over a year more of development. That's if we're if we move slow, if we go slow to go fast, which is a great President Lincoln quote. Now you're going to make an impact. And so going back to your original question of how do you become a successful CMO, stick your stick to your guns. Be patient, be thoughtful, and also just make sure people come along for the ride. They understand what you what you are doing. You do you have all of those ingredients. That is a true recipe for success.
0: Yeah, and I uh, I, I like your uh, one of the statistics you gave before for a new CMO, a first time CMO, their average tenure is six months. I hadn't yes. heard that one. Um, normally, it's it's been over the last couple of years, maybe 24 months, I guess, for a seasoned CMO, yes. and then maybe longer for a, a more seasoned CMO. And one of the interesting things about six months is if you're a new CMO and you only have six months tenure to be able to then prove yourself to get that seventh month, you're unfortunately inheriting everything that the guy before you was fired for. And so you have to your change your speed to make changes significant and meaningful changes uh, is re- you're really under the gun for that uh, number yeah. one and number two you know you have to then at least if you if you can't make changes fast enough and certainly bigger brands are harder to make changes uh, very quickly you have to then really develop that vision in the first six months so that you can buy that that seventh month and that eighth month. Uh, now I
1: would argue that vision needs to be defined within the first couple of months. That's that's really yeah, yeah. going to be cute and get any everybody behind that vision and understanding the steps in that vision. You do not have a lot of time to yeah. to do that. And and you know, marketing is one of those things that we've always struggled with, and that everybody thinks that they can do marketing. Uh, you try to argue with an accountant. All of us know that we can't do accounting, <laughs> but marketing—everybody feels like they can they can do it. And so everybody questions everything that you're doing. Um, we've spoken guy in past conversations about when budgets are cut, it's usually cut from marketing first. And so making sure, again, people process some plumbing, making sure your plumbing's in, in place. So when the CEO comes to you saying we need to cut three million dollars you can say very very quickly and succinctly, well, based on this report, if you cut 3 million, you're going to impact X number of million in revenue. That's the plumbing piece. So making sure the right people are in place, making sure that there's right process in place so those people can be successful and making sure the plumbing's in place so you can be successful. You have the, the data, you have the information to show that you are making an impact on the organization. And if you or any member or any budget dollar goes away, there is a direct impact on the organization itself.
0: Yeah, and that is a, uh, and that's kind of what our business is: is about connecting marketing to selling, and connecting right. marketing to actual incremental sales. And uh, and that's a a critical piece. And uh, uh, I used to, we used to work with Donna Peoples a long time ago when she was at yeah. Atlanta Gaslight. And she did exactly like what you're saying. The CEO came to her and said, listen, we need to cut a million dollars out of your budget. And she mm-hmm. says, OK, yeah, no problem. Then uh, we need to cut, you know, whatever it was, 20 million dollars in sales out of the sales budget. And the CEO said, oh, uh, we don't want <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so we,
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: So we went to the next C-suite, so to speak, and <laughs> took it somewhere mm-hmm. else. And, uh, you know, and it's funny, too. Um uh it, uh, it is really unfortunate that quite often companies think about cutting marketing first. And, uh, yeah. and even now with the hints of a recession and the hints of re- inflation, uh, you know, we're seeing that in the industry where the, the marketers are then doing everything they can to defend their budgets and realizing that even though maybe their effectiveness of their marketing might go down in a recession, it's still better than not doing the marketing at all. And yes. that's a really critical argument for the, for the whole marketing team. <clears throat>
1: well, and it's so interesting that you use the Donna Peoples example. I've had similar experiences being on the agency side where the agency budgets are cut. And we're all disappointed and annoyed. And my point back to my team was, well, then we didn't do our job proving that we were mm. making an impact, that we were just spending the, the client's money. And yes, it looked pretty, and we, we received a lot of engagement, but the numbers that mattered, it, we were looking at the metrics, the things that we test and optimized and improved over time, but the numbers that mattered, the key performance indicators, we weren't rolling that back up and showing in a way that the CEOs understand and appreciate how that's going to make an impact. CEOs know that they need social media and they need to be engaging with their audiences, but when it comes down to tightening that bell and they're starting to ask why it's like, okay, that was a nice to have, not a need to have. So that's not going away. Well, we all know in, intuitively as marketers that when that piece goes away, brand awareness goes away. We lose control of the brand perception message. We know that intuitively, but in intuition, doesn't pay the bills and doesn't get what the CEO needs for his or her board of directors. We need that definitive proof that when this goes away, then this will also go away. So why not get the pieces in place, get the plumbing in place, do the turning off, turning on tests before that actually happens. So you control the message before the message controls you.
0: Yeah. How true. And, and, and it's interesting that you, um, You bring up the CEO and the board. So the CEO is coming to you and saying, well, what happens if we cut? And if as the CMO or as the agency, if you don't have the answer that says, yes, let's cut a million dollars out and we're going to lose 20 million in sales. The CEO needs that argument because his job is just as much on the line when he goes to the board and says, well, yes, we're going to have to cut somewhere. But if we cut marketing, not only are we going to lose the 20 million. And then to your point as well, we're also going to lose the future because yeah. you marketing to not only drive sales in the short term, but you need marketing to drive sales in the future and cutting off your brand uh, uh, investments is a sure way to then cut off that, that future uh, that you might have once you come out of that recession.
1: Agreed. Right. Well yeah, said.
0: Absolutely. So uh, yeah, great point. So uh So now, uh, switching topics just a little bit. Uh, so what kind of advice would you give to a female leader?
1: Oh, wow. Do we have a whole nother podcast guy?
0: (laughs) We do. We do. We (laughs) could certainly continue this, but let's, let's go from there and see what we've got.
1: (laughs) It's so interesting being a female leader. I, so I'm a member of Chief, um, which is a for-profit organization. Uh, really focused on bringing uh, curating female leaders. That you have to be a, an actual certain level of leader for a certain amount of of years to be first invited. And and then yes, it's a it's a paid membership. I, I bring that up because yesterday we had this great amazing session around executive presence. Uh, and and what's fun about this is is with Zoom you get to do uh, you get to hear the presenter. But then you get to chat with everybody <laughs> to the, to the side. And it was really just an overall great dialogue. And what we were bringing up is how to be your authentic self of how women are known to talk too much or our squeaky voices or we can't be heard or we're too defensive or we're, we're too aggressive. And what she was recommending is, is really be your authentic self. Which, to a certain point, I agree, but I also, because I've spent so much time in the agency and consulting world, um, I'm a big believer of, of mirroring that person as well. Um, and so why do I bring up all of these things? It's really this idea of communication. As a female leader, as any leader, especially in the agency and consulting space, how you position yourself, how you hold yourself, how you communicate, is incredibly important. I don't care if you're male or female, you can't come across as defensive. I don't care if you're male or female, you can't use crutch words or speak too quickly or use lingo. Um, and, and, and really, doesn't matter if you're male or female. If you work for me, I will. I put I call it my taboo session, and mm-hmm. uh, all of my employees for past years are now laughing right now as they listen to me. Uh, we all sit in a room. They get to pick a topic uh, that they can present on. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be something they're comfortable with, that they enjoy. And then it needs to be one of those, you know how it works. It's 20 slides, five minutes, and the slides automatically progress. And I get to be the person back in the room with the taboo button. The moment you start speaking too quickly or you're using too many crutch words or lingo, I buzz you. And what was really interesting, it ended up being a guy He got so frustrated with me that he was sarcastically slowing himself down to the point that I stopped it and said, okay, now what does everybody think of this guy? And they said, wow, he sounds amazing. He sounds so authoritative. Yes, communication is key. I don't care if you're female or male. If you are going to be growing up in this business as an executive you need to learn how to hold yourself. You need to take a position of authority, of confidence. The next time I hear a researcher interviewed on NPR, a female researcher interviewed on NPR about her research and she says, I think I will explode. Never say I think. She has spent five years doing this research. She knows it is what it is. It says it in the data. And so having that, taking that, that position of power is is the number one thing that you can do. I don't care if you're male or female. Shifting more to a female perspective, yes, there are going to be things that either in reality or in perception, things like mansplaining and, and gaslighting and all of those kinds of areas, and you're going to be frustrated. Come up with techniques. There's a lot of great articles out there. Again, hire an executive coach, join a membership and Take lessons. There are techniques that you can use that again put you in position of authority. You are going to have that man-splaining kind of thing, or someone who's who doesn't listen to your idea. But as soon as a guy says it, it there is that perception that everybody's now listening to him. Well, use techniques to say, George, I'm really happy that you shined a spotlight on that idea that I just talked about. Let me even take that a step further and go back to these points that I was saying. So that's again. It may be my point number two, but it does really come back to communication and communication style. And and again, not being defensive, but going in with a position of authority and confidence. Uh, and, you know, I, I think three is just find your people. Um, those people can be men. Those people can be women. Um, I have found a lot of great mentors in men. A lot of great organizations, there's a great IBM example that I use that will bring me to my final point on what to do is around this idea of having confidence in yourself. I attended an an IBM session once, and IBM's doing a really great job in cultivating their female leaders, and one of those leaders, a man, uh, tells a story about how he had a job opening, and it really came down to two people, a man who had... Maybe enough experience. And a woman that if you looked at, if you checked all the boxes, she checked every single one of the boxes. And they are both up for this position. The woman just happened to be part of this, this Cultivating Female Leaders program. So she had a mentor. And this leader comes back to the mentor and says, let me explain to you what just happened. The guy came in and said, I can do this job. Here, this here's the skill set I have. How this is how it translates. Uber confident was all in. He can do it. The woman came in and said, "I don't know. Am I ready? Do I really have all the skill set? Maybe I need a couple more years of experience." That happens time and time again. We, you know, we keep saying that we want equal rights, that we want equal opportunity. Well, we are now being given equal opportunity, and in many times because of our Imposter syndrome, our self-doubt, we don't take it. We don't, there's been females that I have given opportunities to even recently, and those females didn't take it because they didn't think they were ready. Mm. And that, that's an issue. And and we really need to work on those issues.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, I I have seen that. And I, unfortunately, I have seen that so many times uh, where, uh, you know, the, uh, so as an example, and this kind of gets out outside of marketing, but uh, my son's big into climbing and he rented this movie and the movie had uh, individuals doing some really interesting climbing feat, you know, a rock wall or a bridge or this or that. And, uh, and the men were just confident and say, well, there's going to be a problem here or problem there, but I think I know how to get around it. And, uh, and the women were exactly like you're saying is, I don't know if we can do this. You know, they, they, they yeah. often tried it, but the first thing out of their mouth was that lack of confidence. And, right. uh, and, you know, it's, and it, it's, I don't know what, what causes that, but you would, you would think that in college or something, or maybe even in high school, somebody has to then, you know, have a, have a, a thing that says, okay, you know, women, you have to do this and you have right. to, you have to show confidence. Now the men, of course, <laughs> we're faultless, except for all the other <laughs> faults. <laughs> and, uh, we need the same kind of thing, except different. And right. that's the exactly. confidence uh, piece that you're talking about. Uh, I hate to say it. I, I think you're right. You, you, it's, it's, uh, it unfortunately happens to where you have a, a woman that is much more qualified and yet they, they do have that reticence to, to, to say that, yes, I'm ready to it. So.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. So if any of your listeners are female and would like some mentoring, please reach out to me. You can find me on all the social medias.
0: Yeah. And I, and be honest with you, I, uh, as part of the AMA, the American, the American Marketing Association here in Atlanta, uh, I've been a, a mentor, I don't know, for three or four, uh, years now. And I think it's the, it's the most, uh, fun thing that I do to help young marketers, both, both male and female. And um, and uh, and that's one of the big things as well. And uh, so and even, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's your own employees or whether it's, uh, you, know, you know, outsiders like mentees or whatever, you know, I think, you know, helping people to get that confidence that, yes, they can do the job and OK, they may have some doubts on one area, but yes, you know, go for it, go for it, go for it. So,
1: right. Well, and shout out to AMA and the Mentor Mentee Program. Shout out to Joanne Harold. She was my mentor. Um, I was, and i date myself. I was working on. I was in marketing, so I had figured out that I wanted to do marketing. And I was at the fax machine, and at that time, AMA was faxing its announcement announcements for its mentor mentee program. And I right away. I'm a big. I was I've always been taught. To work with mentors. I don't know if it was something my father taught me or something. And right away I signed up for it. And I actually wasn't assigned Joanne initially. I was given another mentor and we did this. I think it was some kind of volunteer event and uh, we switched because the guy I was with was better with someone else. <laughs> Joanne was better for me. And uh, I am here today because of that, that those opportunities that Joanne opened me up to and the coaching and, and counseling that she has given to me throughout the years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's a, she's definitely a great uh, person to have as a mentor. And uh, so yes. congratulations. That's so, that's so fantastic that uh, that she was able <laughs> to help you. Um, yeah. Wow. So we've talked about kind of uh, the new CMOs and, uh, and what their challenges are. And, and we've talked about uh, female leaders. Uh, there's one other dimension that goes into marketing and that is uh, the pace of change. And I like oh. to say, uh, you know, it's, it's not just that change is happening all the time. It's that accelerated change is now happening all the time. The time between a new technology and a new capability seems to be shortening and shortening. And, uh, and I think the, the good news is that that leaves a lot of opportunity for marketers that can figure out how to use it early on. Uh, but, uh, but just staying up with that. So what, what do you recommend to the marketing leaders uh, today in terms of how they should handle the disruptive technologies and the new technologies that are, uh, that are uh, streaming right in front of them?
1: Well, and I would say don't panic. Just because we're using the word disruptive doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be. Fast. If we think about personally identifiable information, because I w- when you asked me to answer this question, guys started doing some research on a lot of the latest, uh, technologies out there that are sometimes in some ways helping marketers and other ways hurting marketers and this whole idea of haves and have nots. And, you know, I reached out to my CTO about this to see what he was thinking of and he brought up AdGuard and Hole and I wasn't going to use the examples, but I like the opportunity of being able to say pie Hole on your podcast. So <laughs> I love that this company named their company piehole. All of you will not forget what it is. Um, but what it is, just before I move on, but these are companies that are blocking client-side tracking implementations and forcing companies to go server-side. It's this whole idea of what does a third-party cookie list future look like uh, that's become sort of this tagline. Mm. Well, this is something, you know, and I, I kind again, of, dude, I'm, people are going to think I am so old after listening to podcasts. but do you remember in 1999, the double click and abacus merger that happened? That's and in 2000, all the lawsuits began. Uh, that's when I started at Razorfish and Razorfish because of the, the drive. So drive PM, Razorfish and a third company that is, I'm, I'm forgetting, but really because drive PM was so focused on cookie based tracking. And then you had Razorfish that was focused on using that tracking. And because of Abacus and and DoubleClick, there was a lot of urgency around not connecting PII with the cookies. Well, you fast forward to today, two decades later, and that's really what's happening. And it's become so easy to do that. And with great ease and great actually results comes great power and and it is used for nefarious purposes. And so now the, the government's having to catch up and put in different kinds of things like GDPR. Well, GDPR, I don't know if you saw the latest article, but a lot of the GDPR guidelines are going to be rolled back and there's expected to be a billion pounds savings uh, for these companies because the amount that's been put on them. So it's just, it's two decades, but it's a lot. And and there's a lot to think about and a lot of work to be put in place. We were going to have complete, no third-party cookies. Thankfully, we got a little bit of a respite there. But if you think about it, it's really only Google left. A lot of the others, Safari, Firefox have already gotten rid of this. Um, so, we say disruption, but there is uh, many times there is a bit of time to catch up. You just can't wait because if you do wait, then it is going to be sudden. It is going to be expensive and it is going to be a, a wildfire that you're going to need to put out. So don't, so to get back to your original question around what should marketers do, marketers should be looking out to the future as much as they can. They should be looking at the past and saying, what can we learn from the past? And then they should be applying that to the future. Uh, An example of past to future is, if you look at Google, when I grew up, Google was big big search engine optimization, all algorithms, all organic traffic. That was 100% of what they did. And that's still very much in play today. Heck, there's whole SEO agencies focused on that. But at one point, Google realized that they could charge people and they could do paid advertising. And so then... Paid became a big part of the algorithm. Fast forward to Facebook. Well, Those of us that went through the Google could see what was going to happen with Facebook, with Twitter, Pinterest. Every time one of those social media platforms comes out and says they're not going to do paid, don't believe them. And so learning from the past and applying that to the future will help you be prepared for the future. Seeing that Firefox and Safari have eliminated cookies, and I'm going to have to fact check. I believe I'm correct on that, right, Guy?
0: That's what I understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So knowing that they've already done that, doesn't that lead you to believe that Google is going to be doing the same? And so thinking about where you're supposed to be going in order to address that. Don't wait because what feels like disruptive isn't necessarily disruptive. You're starting to see the signs. Um, COVID with people wanting to actually order food and get it delivered to you. Companies had been starting to prepare for that. And thankfully, you know, thankfully companies like churches had already hired people like Alan to actually fix that. Now, Alan's budget went from a nice to have to, oh my goodness, <laughs> fix it now. Um, but Ken, disruptive isn't as disruptive as we think it is. Disruptive is only truly disruptive and equally urgent if we let it be that way. We need to always be looking at the past and figuring out how it will impact our future.
0: Well, that's an interesting point, I, and I, I do like that. But So does that then mean that the marketing leader, the CMO, needs to have a function which is uh, marketing technology so that someone, maybe it's not a full-time or maybe it is for a larger brand, but uh, somebody then that is really tracking and making certain that the company is staying up to date with whatever those uh, those changes in technologies are going to be.
1: Well, traditionally, that's been why agencies still exist. Every time there's articles going out saying that agencies are going to go away, I, I, I'm hesitant to say that that's a good idea. Yes, will your partnership with your agency shift? Should agencies – so let's use an agency example, the commoditization of social media, community management. Brands are going to figure out that it's a lot less expensive to hire a 55 dollars $60,000 resource to, to do the day-to-day community support for their social media and not hire an agency. And the agencies, from a strategic perspective, need to be those partners to help prepare the brands. I've been saying for several years now, how are you, what are the steps you're taking in order to prepare for this cookie list future? Let's get your, your first-party data all in one place. Let's consolidate your data, your customer data, into one warehouse. Let's start considering CDPs. Let's start looking at these things. I've been talking about that since I've been at because I I I knew it was coming, and so let's prepare for it. So we have several years to prepare for it, not OK, it's time and Google's going away and your advertising that you've been depending on was now out the window. And so that's where agencies, not to be self-serving because I lead an agency, but that's where that's what you should expect your agency partners to do is to be the person that helps you look across your space, look at culture and competitors and all those areas. It's also easier for us to do it because we don't deal with the same people every day. We're looking across many different industries, many different clients. So we actually have the benefit of of different things coming to us, different questions being asked, different perspectives versus having to do that one set of things every day.
0: Yeah, interesting. And uh and uh that that is a great point in terms of having the agencies to be the external experts because and that that's one of the the challenges that we have as well and I'm sure you have it as well is that we can have analysts working for us, and and we could then be you know brought in house. Or anal- they could do our, our work. They could do it in house, uh, but those analysts in house won't get the exposure that the that the agency person would have because the agency right. person, just like ours our our team, they're working across multiple clients, across multiple industries, and different challenges. And it's that advantage that, that we bring and certainly for an agency and certainly then for this, this element of, un, you know, following and tracking technology is definitely something that, uh, that, uh, that the, the technologists within the agency can really shine as opposed to trying to do that internally.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we're about towards the end here and, uh. Okay. I could, we could go on for hours and, uh, I always enjoyed, uh, talking with you, Teresa. One thing I do want to mention to the audience, my first book, which is over my shoulder right there, uh, Teresa was one of my first editors, my, my first beta reader, and she gave some really great advice and, uh, I will never forget that and, uh, and I'm always thankful for that. And, uh, and since that book, I've now written, uh, four more. So this last one is my, my fifth book on the on the on on marketing and and uh, and I think it really is uh, something that that uh, really helps or can help marketers to uh, improve their overall operations and prove then that they're delivering on the on the success that they have been charged with. So before yep. we close, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to uh, mention or any comments that we left off or anything that comes to mind?
1: Uh, and so a, a few things. One is Guy has been a great mentor and partner to me throughout the years. Uh, go ahead and look at that book and see when that was and look at my LinkedIn profile. I was a little itty-bitty marketing manager back back then. I thought I knew it all. <laughs> I'm realizing all these years later I didn't. Um, but that guy has been someone who has been a, a persistent part of my life and, and a big part of helping me think through, marketing return on marketing investment uh, all of those areas so again going back to your question about female leaders and any leader for that matter having that that partner in lots of different areas is is incredibly important so that's number 1 uh number 2 again again pandering to the uh the interviewer uh, i was able to to read guys book while i was i was traveling for volleyball this week and it will be something that i ask um to surprise guys the analytics and strategy team this is going to be required reading and discussion group um i really love this version of guys book because of that aspect that we covered quite thoroughly earlier in this interview around the fact that data isn't just numbers data is research, it's insights, it's telling that story in order to spark creativity, in order to make sure that when the CEO comes to prove your budget so she can go then back to her board and, and prove it to the board, making sure you have those pieces in place. All of those things are are so important. Um, and then my hope is, is that at some point we can go back and have another discussion, Guy. I believe uh, you and I talked a lot about Traditional versus digital and full uh, full funnel um, to really put a bow on that as you know, we sum things up for for your listeners is Guy and I talked a lot about agencies and brands and the the partnership um, we also talked about people process plumbing if you are a new leader do your best to break down the silos um, traditional is now becoming digital. Uh, full funnel, this idea of awareness and perception and that impact and how it makes them performance-based marketing, we have grown up in these silos and the silos have gotten worse. And we need to make sure to break down those silos to truly become integrated. So if there's one big takeaway you come from this interview is, is really look at your current organization and see how can you make it more integrated and, and more of an integrated approach so you can set yourself up for success.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, uh, thank you. And thank you so much for the endorsement. I really appreciate it. You've been a, uh, you've also been a, a great person to bounce ideas off of over the years and, uh, and really always appreciate your, your input. But, uh, to your point though about the uh, data silos, one of the things that, uh, that marketing analytics, if done right, and there's a lot of people that don't do it right, it has to break down the silos because yeah. to your point, it's not just the, the, the consumer data and the consumer research that is a data point or the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, other ac- activities in the environment that are taking place, but it's also getting data from sales, from marketing, from operations, from customer service, whatever it happens to be. And having that clean data across the entire organization uh, is really the best way you can get the, the best results so you can really drive the, the, business, uh, the business forward.
1: Agree wholeheartedly. Well said.
0: Thank you. So, uh, yeah, Teresa, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, with that, uh, let me close so you can find more about uh, the Johnson Group at johnsongroup.com, johnsongroup.com. Uh, that's where Teresa is now uh, leading the charge and slaying those dragons. And otherwise, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the Backstory on Marketing. Please visit Marketing Machine prorelevant.com to download uh, this blog, and you can also see it on uh, popular podcast uh, providers such as Apple, Spotify, and many others. And if you do that, please rate it five stars, and I'd really appreciate it. Otherwise, thank you, and Teresa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, guys.